Open your Bible to Psalm 100. Now, with the shorter week and my upcoming preaching assignment, um, I wanted to go with a passage that I was more familiar with, and uh, so I felt like, let me choose some like low-hanging fruit here. <laughs> go with something shorter, simpler, maybe a little bit more accessible. Um, and in this brief chapter that we're going to look at, you don't have to go very far to benefit from its riches. But as I've been studying this passage this past week, a funny thing has happened. And it shouldn't be surprising to me or to any of you, although I was surprised by it again this week. There is more in God's Word, even in these five verses, than I could possibly imagine, and that I could possibly unpack in uh, this short time together. Every word, every phrase is loaded, loaded with significance and with, with truth that we could just expound upon for hours and hours and not run out of things to say. So it's been pretty overwhelming this week looking at this passage, um, but I hope that you experience some of that overwhelming awe that I experienced as we look to God's Word together this morning. Uh, before we jump into the text, I do want us to reflect on the reality that it is such a gift that God gives us His Word, that God speaks to us. Our God is not a God who just acts, but He's a God who, who speaks, and He speaks in such a way that we can understand, we can comprehend some of Not all, but some of who he is. And he tells us who he is. He tells us who we are. He tells us how we are to live. The God of the universe comes down to to us, to our level. The word became flesh, dwelt among us. He does this so that we might hear and through the word see him and have life in him. What a privilege. What a privilege that is. Uh, Before we, we proceed, let me just, let me pray and ask for God's help. We need his illumination this morning. Father, we come confessing our weakness, confessing our need for you. We ask that the Holy Spirit would open up our eyes that we might behold wondrous things out of your word this morning. In your word is is truth about who you are and truth about who we are and truth about how we are to live. May it make its impression deep on our hearts and on our minds this morning. Would you give me grace and strength as I preach your word? May, May you help me be moved out of the way so that we might look to you together. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. This morning we're looking at Psalm 100. I trust you're there. If you're, if you're not there, you're newer to your Bible. It's going to be pretty close to the middle, middle of your Bible. Psalms is the longest book in the Bible, 150 chapters. And uh, we're, we're going to be looking at Psalm 100. Uh, 19th century British preacher Charles Spurgeon describes this chapter as all ablaze with grateful adoration. As you see, the first thing you'll see in the, in the superscription, the little, little line that's in all caps right before verse 1, this is a psalm for giving thanks, where Scripture gives us what, what the purpose of the psalm is. It's a psalm for giving thanks. It's a blaze with grateful adoration. This psalm puts on display for us what we are to do in worship and what we are to know in worship. There's this rhythm that we're going to see between action and education, between praise and proclamation. So it's a call to us. It's telling us what we are to do. It's a command to us, telling us how we are to do it. And it's a reminder to us, telling us why we're to do it, telling us what is true. So this psalm aims to expand our vision beyond what we can see, and it aims to extend it throughout all the world and across all eternity. And I've asked for a little help this morning with my passage with Psalm 100, uh, it's, a, it's a chapter that my son, Knox, who's seven years old, has memorized. And since it's a family Sunday, I thought it'd be great for him to come up 
and recite Psalm 100 for us. So this is the Word of God. Let's look together at his word as Knox recites Psalm 100. Thank you, Knox. Go ahead. Make it joyful, Oh, hold on. Let's wait till your mic is on. Maybe not. There it is. All right, now you can go. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all fear. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For the Lord is good and steadfast love endures forever to and his, and his faithfulness to all generations. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Knox. Thank you, Knox. That is the, the word of God. Thanks be to God for his word. Now this morning we're going to look at this psalm under three main headings. And they all have to do with grateful worship with giving thanks. And the first heading is going to be what? What are we to do in worship? The second heading is going to be how? How are we to worship? And the third heading is going to be why? Why are we to worship? Now, we, while we do not have the time or capacity to get to all that this psalm has for us, I trust that these, these headings are going to serve as we see how the psalm answers each of these questions. So first, what? What are we to do in worship? Now, this psalm is action-packed. In these five verses, we're commanded to do seven different things. Verse 1, we see that we're to make a joyful noise. Make. Verse 2, serve the Lord. Come. Come into his presence. Verse 3 tells us that we're to know certain things. Verse 4 tells us three things, that that we're to enter his gates, that we're to give thanks to him, we're to bless his name. Seven different commands as to what we are to do in worship. We're going to look briefly at a few of these commands together. First, hear the call of verse 1 says this, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Now, this is not a call simply to be loud. And this morning, it might get a little loud in here. That's not what this call is for. I'm, I'm speaking of the children mostly. <laughs> the Hebrew word that's translated joyful noise is the word that would be used for like the fanfare that a king might receive upon his return into the city. It's Many of us have seen, have seen scenes like this depicted in movies and stories. A hero goes out and defends a people, rescues a people by defeating the enemy. Or perhaps he saved them from sure catastrophe. And when that hero returns, you know the scene, you can picture it in your mind. There's this, this shout of celebration as the people gather together. The hero doesn't walk in and everybody is just like busy with something else. Or nor does the hero just receive like congratulatory thumbs up, like everybody's just standing there. No, they're, they're shouting, and it's, it's joyful shouting. It's, it's the cry of liberation and, and freedom, the benefits of freedom that have been attained at the work of this hero. The more significant the hero and the greater the act of deliverance, the less the joyful noise can be contained. This is the psalmist's call to us, make a joyful noise. And it's not just a call to us. Notice there, it's, it's a call to all the earth. Make a joyful noise, all the earth. This God, our hero, if you will, is so great that he must be exalted in all the earth. 
Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. This is the great end of creation, that God might be glorified, that his name would be hallowed and exalted in every land by every people. Because God's goodness and his glory extend across all creation, all creation must praise his name. And this is, this is a theme that runs consistently as we gather together. We sing songs like all creatures of our God and King, lift up your voice and with us sing. That's what this is reflective of. Next, the psalmist builds on this call, giving us the, the second what of worship. The second what is that we are to serve, serve the Lord. So we make a joyful noise and we serve the Lord. This word for serve refers to everything that we do, all of life. There's not a distinction that's made, even in the Hebrew, there's not this distinction between uh, what someone might do in the temple and what they do when they go to work. It's all one and the same. It's all encompassing. The psalmist isn't just talking about corporate worship. It's talking about every moment. One thing that we do every Sunday that may feel a bit misleading if you think about it, is we have this call to worship. Marcelo served us this morning by reading from Micah 7 and, and giving us this call, this call to worship. So each Sunday we, we gather together and we begin our time with God speaking to us, God calling us to worship. Now you might hear this phrase and think that, oh, this is when worship begins. It's a call to worship. But that's not true. So sorry that we lie every Sunday about that. <laughs> It's meant to be a reminder because it's not true because we are always worshiping. It's a call to continue our worship. A friend of mine, a, a, someone who has influenced me, uh, Harold Best, he coined the phrase unceasing worship. This is who we are. Our worship, it, it never stops, whether we're at work or at church or at school. Harold Best, he defines worship as the continuous outpouring, unending, continuous outpouring of all that I am, all that I do, and all that I can ever become in light of a chosen or a choosing God. Worship is the continuous outpouring of all that I am, all that I do, all that I can ever become in light of a chosen or a choosing God. We are like a mountain spring, but instead of water coming out of us, worship is always coming out of us. We're always worshiping something. We worship things like, like food, possessions, recognition, these things become our little gods. We give ourselves to worshiping relationships or safety or health. There's all kinds of things that we worship in our own little ways. We face circumstances every day that urge us to serve something other than God. You may be here today not serving the Lord. You may be serving some solution to a problem you're facing. All of your thoughts and all of your actions are given to solving that problem. You're worshiping the solution to that problem. It's good that you want a solution to your problem. It is bad when that solution becomes your God. God's call to us is to serve him and him alone. So we make a joyful noise and we serve the Lord. Next, the psalmist says that we are not just to make a joyful noise and serve the Lord. We are to come into his presence with singing. This is the third what of worship. We are to come into his presence. Now, every phrase of this chapter is just bursting with meaning, including this one. I mean, look at the, just the very first word here, come. We are called to come. Now, I don't know if you've taken inventory of your life recently, but as for me, I know I am I'm wayward. 
I can lack self-control. I can doubt God's love. I can doubt God's power when I face challenging circumstances. I constantly fail at things that I set out to do. My very best efforts, they leave tons of room for improvement. I'm not an impressive person, and neither are you. But God calls me, and God calls you to come. And we're called to not just come, we're called to come into his presence. This is an incredible call. Think back to our time in the book of Esther. We just finished the book of Esther. Do you remember what it meant for someone to enter the presence of the king? It was a big deal. It was such a big deal that if you entered the king's presence without his invitation, without his permission, what did it mean? It meant certain death. And that was just the king of Persia. But the same thing was true for the God of Israel. If you think back to the, the Old Testament, the tabernacle and the temple, these things represent God's presence in the Old Testament. This is the place where God dwells, where he lives. This is his, his courts. And Israel had this whole system for how one could enter into God's presence. And it was the most exclusive activity possible. To be in the presence of God is a really, really big deal. At the center of the tabernacle and temple is the, the holy place, and inside that is the, the holy of holies, the most holy place. This was the place where God was most present. And not just anyone at any time could enter this place. Only one person in all of Israel could enter this place ever. That was the high priest. And only he could do it on one day out of the year. That was the Day of Atonement. To enter God's presence at any other time, or by any other person, meant certain death. And here in Psalm 100, we're invited to come into his presence. Now as with all Old Testament passages, this verse intends to point us forward. It intends to point us forward to a greater expression of this invitation to come into his presence. Because when Jesus hung on the cross, when his blood was shed for our sins, the curtain that was hung to separate God's presence from sinful man, this curtain that kept humanity out of the most holy place, it was torn in two. And now as Hebrews 10, 19 says, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain. In Jesus, the barrier that separates a holy God from a sinful people, it no longer exists. Through faith, we can enter into God's presence and God is present with us. Though he invites us to come into his presence. This is something that we should keep in mind every week that we gather. God is here. God is present. And he calls us to come to him. Now the fourth what of worship, we see at the beginning of verse 3, that first word, know. Know that the Lord, he is God. The worship God calls us to is based on knowing certain things. It's based on knowledge. It's based on certain facts, certain truth. Often when we gather, I begin our time by saying something like, we are gathered this morning to be reoriented to reality, to be reminded of what's really real. This is what the psalmist is doing here. He's saying, you worship because of all these things. And in a bit, we're going we're gonna to see the why of worship. That's going to be the third heading we're going to look at. We'll unpack it then. Uh, but first, let's look at the other three actions that we are called to. And they are all in verse 4. So the next what of worship is to enter. Enter his gates with thanksgiving. 
and his courts with praise. Again, we cannot forget just whose gates and whose courts we are called to enter. Remember that the exclusivity of his dwelling place. His gates are shut to the unclean. His courts are not available to the sinner. This is what Revelation 21:27 tells us. Nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. But in Jesus, through that new and living way, not only can we enter his gates, his courts, we enter the holy of holies. In Jesus, we can have this relationship with God. In Jesus, we are welcome and invited. That's why this morning it's all about looking to him. Every week is all about looking to him and finding our hope in him, our life in him. And our response to this entering leads to the sixth and seventh what's of worship. We are to give thanks to him, to bless his name. All that we do and all that we are should be an expression of giving thanks to God. Our lives should be a reflection of that, the first request of the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Of all people and all things, it is the, the blessed God that should be the most blessed we're going to have a lot more to say about on that note, but before we get to the reasons behind all this worship, let's look at the, the manner of our worship. We've seen the psalmist call us to certain things, to make a joyful noise, to serve the Lord, to come into his presence. But just how are we to do all those things? And this brings us to our, our second main heading, how. How are we to worship? Let's begin with verse 2. The psalmist doesn't just say, serve the Lord. What does he say there? He says, Serve the Lord with gladness. We serve him not out of obligation or duty, but with gladness. I want you to get something of the joy that is here. In verse 1, we are to make a joyful noise. And here we are to serve him with gladness. God is not a grumpy God. He is a happy God. Charles Spurgeon said it this way. He said, our happy God should be worshipped by happy people. We are to serve the Lord with gladness. Serving the Lord is like, it's like obeying your parents to some extent. It is not obedience if I ask my child to go clean their room and, and they then go to their room and start cleaning up all the while yelling, no, it's not obedience. It might be compliance, but it's not obedience. True obedience comes from the heart and it is done in joy. So we're to serve the Lord with gladness. Next, the psalmist says in verse 2 that we are to come into his presence. There are lots of ways we could be called to come into his presence. There are many things that it would be appropriate to put in here at the end of this phrase, come into his presence. We could come into his presence with groveling. Come into his presence with, with trembling. Come into his presence pleading. Come into his presence on your knees. Come into his presence with reverence and with awe. But here... The how of our worship, the way God calls us to come into his presence, this exclusive place, the holy of holies, is with singing. Come into his presence with singing. Each Sunday we gather together to sing, not just because it's fun to do or any other reason. We gather to sing because God calls us to sing. For God himself is a singing God. Just like God is a happy God, God is a singing God. Listen to Zephaniah 3.17. The Lord your God is in your midst. Every Sunday we gather, this is true. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. 
He will exult over you with loud singing. When we sing, we join His song. We join into an eternal song. We gather together in a school cafeteria this morning with our children and sing. Some of our voices may be better than others, but none is more or less important than another. What we do may seem small and ordinary, but it is glorious. Recently, I heard a uh, a sermon by a friend of mine when I was in in England last fall, and he he pastors a church in a small village called Burbridge in in northern uh, England. And he, in his sermon, he recounted some of the amazing, incredible things that have happened in Burbridge in this small little village. And so he goes through 1,500 years of history talking about the people that have walked up these steps and the, the wars that have taken place in this village and the surrounding area. And then he said this. He said, but he was speaking on a Friday. In today's time, when 30 people gather into, a, into this small room, the most extraordinary thing that could ever happen in Burrowbridge happens that morning. Because we gather in the presence of God to sing God's praises. When we gather together, we are coming by grace through the blood of Jesus Christ into the presence of the living God. There is no more remarkable thing that we could take part in. This is the most extraordinary thing we could ever participate in. So let's not take it for granted. Now the next how of our worship is seen in verse 4. We are to enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. In other words, we are to be a grateful and a praising people. This is the how of our worship, and it's all over Scripture. 1 Thessalonians 5 says this, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Give thanks in all circumstances. Colossians 3 says, And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now, I know a little bit of Greek, and I know enough Greek to know that that all and that everything, that means all and everything. It means everything that we do, done with gratefulness and thanksgiving. Our thanksgiving and our praise, they, they encompass every area of our life. When we eat and when we drink, when we lie down to sleep, when we work or play with our friends, when we do our schoolwork or mow our lawn, we are to give thanks. Among all the people in the world, we should be the most grateful. We should be the most joyful. This is Paul's exhortation to us in Philippians. He says this in Philippians 4.4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Why? Because this is the most logical thing you could ever do. He says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Because God is present, He is here, rejoice. So Paul continues in in verse 6 of chapter 4, he says, Do not be anxious about anything. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. We're to be a people of rejoicing and thanksgiving and peace, not because everything always works out exactly like we want it to, Not because all of our problems will just magically disappear. Not because we have all the stuff we could ever want. We are a people of joy and gratefulness because the Lord is at hand. So how are we to worship? We're to worship with gladness. 
We're to worship with singing, with thanksgiving, with praise. This is the how of our worship. All of life, all the time, in every circumstance, in every situation, we worship with joy and thanksgiving. Now third, finally, and most importantly, the psalmist gives us the why of our worship. So this is our our third main heading, why. Why are we to worship? We've seen what we are to do, serving, coming, knowing, thanking, blessing. We've seen how we are to do it, joyfully, gratefully, with praise and singing. Now we look at the why. Why is God so worthy of all this worship? The psalmist gives us six reasons why we are to worship. He gives us three in verse 3 and three in verse 5. We're going to look at these together. The first why of our worship is that we are to know, beginning of verse 3, know that the Lord, He is God. This is all the reason we need for our worship. God is God. He is Lord over all, creator of all, in control of all. If God is who He says He is, and He is, then He contains all things in Himself. He is the source of all beauty. All goodness is found in Him. Truth is defined by His word and works. Everything that we look to satisfaction for, things like ice cream and toys, or belonging and security, all these things won't make us happy ultimately. But the Lord, who is God, is indeed the greatest treasure of our longing souls. He is the fountain of goodness that never runs out. He is the only place where we can ever find rest and peace and joy. So this is what we're to know. First, know that the Lord, He is God. But that's not all. The second reason the psalmist gives us is that it is He who made us. Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us. The very God who rules over all things has created you. Psalm 139, 13 describes this creative activity of God. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. This reality could be, could be terrifying, that this great God created us. But the psalmist quickly explains what it means for God to create us. We are His. We are His. And it gets better from there. The third reason the psalmist gives for why we are to worship is that we are His people. While it's a great privilege to be created human as God's image bearers, it is a far greater one to be counted among the people of God. For all those who have placed their trust in Jesus, you are now part of His people. You not only belong to God, you have belonging in God. Look at how the psalmist describes the scenario. He says, we are, we are the sheep of his pasture. A sheep looks to the shepherd for, for safety and protection against enemies and danger. A sheep looks to the shepherd for, for provision and direction. And the shepherd ensures that the sheep are fed, that they're cared for, that they know where to go and when to do it. Moreover, the shepherd, he knows his sheep. He knows how many he has. He knows their weaknesses. He knows where they are vulnerable. Now, the psalmist writes these words, significant in his day, but he could not fathom how important they would become. Because like I said earlier, this psalm, it points forward. Hear the words of Jesus in John 10. Verse 11, he says this, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. 
Jesus goes on and says this in verse 12, He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. We are his sheep, and he is our good shepherd. But that's not all. Like I said, every word is packed with meaning and significance. We are just his sheep. Look at where we are. We are the sheep of his pasture. We are not nomads wandering, following our shepherd aimlessly. We live in the realm of his pasture. We are the sheep of his pasture. The owner of the pasture doesn't just care for the sheep. He cares for the pasture. Ask Paul Rohr. Ask Paul what he gets himself into most weekends. He's probably tending to his fields and his pastures. The one who owns the pasture, he, he knows its boundaries. He knows the fence line. He knows the landscape. He gives himself to ensuring that the things that are in the pasture, the things that should be in the pasture, they're there, and the things that shouldn't be in the pasture aren't there. Now, if Paul Rohr gives himself to these things, how much more capable is God to do all these things? So while we are his sheep, let us not forget or take for granted that we live in his pasture. There's one hymn that says it this way. It says, this is my father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrongs seem oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. Whatever you face this morning, whatever troubles your soul, you are in his pasture. Psalm 16 says the boundary lines have fallen for you in pleasant places. Indeed, you have a beautiful inheritance. So look to him. Look to the good shepherd who cares for his sheep, who laid down his life for his sheep. This is what we are to know. God is God. He made us. We are his. And just this one verse, the psalmist reminds us who God is, who we are, whose we are, and how blessed we are to be in relationship with him. And we've looked at these first three reasons, the first three whys of our worship in verse three. Now the psalmist adds on three more reasons why we worship in verse five. So he gives us six remarkable reasons for our worship. Let's look at verse five for the fourth why. The Lord, for the Lord is good. For the Lord is good. Verse three, know that the Lord, he is God. Verse five, for the Lord is is good. Our God is not just the sovereign and powerful creator and sustainer of all. He is good. And goodness is not an adjective that describes his activity. It's not like, oh, that was just really good of him to do. That's not how it's used of God. Goodness describes who God is. Goodness belongs to his very essence. Just as you are human, you might be described as human, God is good. That's who he is. Not only that, but all that is good finds its source in God. He is the cause. The goodness that we see and experience is the effect. Whether it be, I like sunrises. I watch sunrise almost every morning. Whether it be the sunrise you see in the morning, or the sound of waves on the beach, or the majesty of the Grand Canyon, or the intricacies you see in a leaf as you hold it up to light, all these are expressions of God's goodness. They are the effect of the good God. 
The joy you feel when your child laughs, the warmth you feel in a hug, the satisfaction you feel after a delicious meal, all of these flow from the very goodness of God. They are effects of the good God. If we see good in all of these things, which are only the effects of his goodness, how much more goodness exists in God? It's like when I go into my refrigerator and fill up a cup of water. When I'm hot and thirsty, that cool water is incredibly good and satisfying. I filled up my cup, let's say 20 ounces of water, and it's good. But behind that dispenser, there is abundantly more water. It's, it's like water that will never run out. While I taste the goodness of the water in my cup, there's a seemingly unending flow behind its cause. The same is true with God, for the Lord is good. Every good thing we see and enjoy has its source in God. So let us look to him and praise him and be satisfied in him. One pastor, 17th century pastor, George Swinnick, he said, God is not one single good, but all good. The truth is that our excellencies, so all of our best goodnesses, they're not even a shadow of God's excellencies. There is some good in one person and some good in another person, but there is not all good in any person. All good is in God. For the Lord is good. If all good is indeed in God, let us never tire of giving him thanks, of blessing his name. The psalmist continues, not only is the Lord good, the fifth why is that his steadfast love endures forever. The word here for steadfast love is one one we spent a lot of time talking about when we went through the book of Ruth. The word for this steadfast love is, the Hebrew word is hesed. It, It is a massive word in scripture. There's no word in the English language that really does it justice in any way. Uh, We could describe it as loving kindness, mercy. This is who God reveals himself to be on Mount Sinai in Exodus 34. He says this, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, chesed, and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. This love is God's goodness, for the Lord is good, expressed in relationship. For God's steadfast love to endure forever means that God's goodness doesn't stay within himself. All good is in God. He doesn't keep it to himself. It's not confined to any one point in time. All good is in God. He doesn't just say, all right, I'm going to express my goodness 3,000 years ago. It also means that God isn't most good when you are most obedient. The steadfast love of God endures forever. It never fails. It never goes away. It never changes. And this is what the psalmist highlights next. The sixth why of our worship is that his faithfulness endures all generations. God is not a God who changes. His disposition is not one way one day and another way the next. God is not like us. Right now, my heart and my mind might be overflowing with gratefulness to God for who he is, for his goodness, for his steadfast love. But I know at some point today, for me, this emotion is going to dissipate. It's going to go away. At some point today, I'll probably be impatient or selfish or proud in spite of what I feel right now. I'm a fickle person. We're fickle people, constantly changing thoughts and emotions. But God is a God who does not change. 
His faithfulness endures to all generations. Can you imagine a God who does change? It would be terrifying. This would mean that God could make promises one day and forget them the next. A God who changes could love us one day and hate us the next. While the world is in constant motion, perpetual change, God declares in Malachi 3, For I, the Lord, do not change. His faithfulness endures to all generations. Not just the first generation, or up until the tenth generation, but all generations. And all means, again, just what it says. In verse 1, we saw that all the earth should make a joyful noise, stretching our understanding of His worth across the world. And here in verse 5, we see that His love endures forever, and His faithfulness stretches across all generations. It endures forever, all of time, lengthening our grasp of His constancy across history. Isaac Watts said it this way, he said, Wide as the world is thy command, breadth. Wide as the world is thy command, vast as eternity thy love. Firm as a rock thy truth shall stand, when rolling years shall cease to move. When all goes away, God is. And this is who God is. He is good. His steadfast love endures forever in his faithfulness to all generations. In this short chapter, we've been given an enormous amount of truth about God and about what he calls us to. And the lights go out. He has given us reasons why God is so worthy of our praise. Why he is so worthy of all honor and glory. Why life and hope can be found in him alone. And what a gift it is that God gives his people these words as a song. He calls us to come to him in singing. Because we are weak, because we are prone to wander and forget, God gives us songs to sing. I read, I came across a quote from John Calvin just last week or the week before and talked about how God gives us songs to distract us from all the worries of this world. He gives us not just words, but the gift of melody and music. And singing contains an almost, an almost mythical quality to it because it moves us and affects us. Imagine like a movie without music. I guarantee you, I didn't see it, but I've, I know a lot of people have, the, like the movie uh, The Greatest Showman. If that had no music, people wouldn't have watched it, or not many would. Um, music moves us in ways that words cannot. Singing also teaches us. Words married to melody have a way, a unique way of getting thoughts into our minds and our hearts. And singing the Psalms gives us the opportunity to put, to put God's words on our lips. As the psalmist writes, worship begins with knowing who God is and knowing who we are. God is God. God is good. God is eternally merciful and unfailingly good. These truths must be in our hearts and in our minds and on our lips. And the church has a rich tradition of singing the psalms together. These are songs that we are meant to sing. The people of God are meant to sing. And when we do so, not only are God's words on our lips, but our voices join with generation after generation who have gone before us and who will come after us as we join the song of the redeemed. These songs have served the church and preserved the church through dark days and through suffering and persecution. One of these seasons was during the Reformation, the 16th and 17th centuries. One of the most important things to happen to the church during this time was that the worship of the church was no longer in Latin, a language that most people could not understand or speak, but was in the vernacular. And 
Another thing that happened during this time as worship became in the vernacular and the common, common language was that psalms began to be sung in the church. And so something called metrical psalms, which would be taking a psalm and putting it to, to verse, like we would a hymn, metrical psalms began to be translated and written into common language. So these psalms were then compiled and put into books called Psalters. These were tumultuous days, and the psalms that were sung, they embedded themselves in the hearts of God's people, encouraging them, preserving them, teaching them how to pray. Perhaps you experience some of this as you go through your week. Something is going on, and and you're reminded of a song we sing. Maybe it was the song we sang this morning, All Must Be Well. Though we pass through tribulations, all will be well. Maybe that, that line jumps out to you. I'm going to close with with recounting a, a story of one of the darkest seasons that took place during, during the 16th, 17th centuries in Scotland. It was known as the Killing Times. That tells you all you need to know. Christians were regularly martyred for their beliefs and practices. But beginning in the 1560s, a Psalter was published in Scotland. 1564 was the first version. The most recent edition of the Scottish Psalter was published in 1650. They're still singing these psalms today. One historian writes this, so during, during the killing times. He says, The new Psalter passed straight into the affections of the common people. It was a godsend coming just then, when the killing times were not far distant. For when the sufferings of those bitter times arrived, it had won its place in the people's hearts, and its lines were so deeply imprinted upon their memories that it is always the language thus given them for the expression of their emotions, which in the great hours we find upon their lips. Because they sang these psalms when they faced trial and suffering and were persecuted. These were the words on their lips. He goes on, he says, In the psalms they found a voice for the faith, the patience, the courage, and the hope that bore them through those dark and cruel years. This Psalter, like I said, is still in use today. And one of the psalms contained in the very first one, 1564, was a version of Psalm 100 by a guy named William Keth. And this psalm was set to a very familiar melody to us. It's called the Old Hundredth, the Old One Hundred. It's what we sing the doxology, praise God from whom all blessings flow. We all know this melody. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. That's what this psalm was sung to, it was set to. And I've, uh, I believe pretty much everyone has received a copy on their way in of the words. The, the words that William Kith wrote was, All people that on earth do dwell. And I trust that this will be a fitting conclusion to our time meditating together, looking together at Psalm 100. This is his metrical psalm. This is his version of Psalm 100. We're going to sing it together to that same melody. If you want to just listen, you can listen. But uh, I thought it would be a joy to, to join our voices together and, and plant these words more deeply in our hearts. I quoted Colossians three sixteen earlier, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And one of the ways that that happens is by singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So let's sing this together. All people that on earth do dwell. All people that on earth do dwell. Sing to the Lord with cheerful voice. Serve Him with joy, His praises tell. Come now before Him and read.
rejoice. Know that the Lord is God indeed. He formed us all without our aid. We are the flock he surely feeds. The sheep who by his hand were made. Oh, enter then his gates with joy. Within his courts his praise proclaim. Let thankful songs your tongues employ. Oh, bless and magnify his name. Because the Lord our God is good, his mercy is forever sure. His faithfulness at all times stood and shall from age to age endure. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for speaking to us and revealing to us yourself through your holy word. Thank you that you are God, that you have made us and we are your people. Thank you that you are good and your steadfast love endures forever and your faithfulness to all generations. Lord, for those who are suffering this morning, who are weighed down by a trial, whether it be a circumstance in their life, or whether it be physical sickness, or whether it be mental distress, Lord, may these look to you and find their hope and their rest in you. May they know that you are faithful to all generations, that your steadfast love never, never runs out, that you are God and that we exist in the midst of your pasture. Lord, for these and, and the many others in our midst who are suffering, Lord, would you, would you give them rest as they look to the good shepherd who watches over his sheep. Lord, we, we thank you that you are good. You are a good God who delights to give your, your children gifts to enjoy. Thank you for this morning and, and the reminder of the future of our church as we gather young and old together in corporate worship. And we pray the same for all of our children. Thank you for the gift that they are. May they be arrows that, that are shot out and bring much glory to your name throughout all the world. Lord, we, we exist in a world that is, is tumultuous. We face seemingly unending challenges and temptations. Lord, we, we face regularly decisions that, that will have impact on our lives and, and they affect what our children hear and, and how they're going to grow. Lord, would you protect us? May we stay rooted in your word, trusting in you, resting in your spirit. Lord, may each and every one of us fully know that you are God. May we depend on you. May we trust you. May we love you with all of our heart and soul. Lord, we look to you this morning. We place our hope in you. Thank you for this reminder of who you are. May, as we go through our week, may we be anchored in the reality of who you are, that you are who you have revealed yourself to be. 
We trust in you. We hope in you. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.